Morning Church family, Exodus 2, 1 through 22. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and born a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could not hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she, saw, when she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And, Hebrews, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the daughter went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to feed their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zephora. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks. be to God. Luke chapter 9, not the text that we looked at today, describes one of the most important, but I also think one of the most misunderstood moments in the ministry of Jesus. It's, it's one of the most important passages of the Bible, I think. And it's the transfiguration, if you know the passage that I'm talking about. Jesus had just been teaching his disciples about the cost of discipleship. And he said, some of you may die. Some of you may die for following me. It's a costly following. But, but at the end of that teaching, he, he said to his disciples, truly, truly, I tell you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And there's been some debate as to what exactly Jesus was talking about, but I think what he's talking about is the very next scene. He goes up on this mountain. And when he's on the mountain, who appears with him is Elijah 
and Moses. And what's happening in this scene is the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were with him, some of them who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, are beholding the plan of God. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Elijah. I said this a few weeks ago, that all in the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. They're seeing the kingdom plan of God right there on this mountain of transfiguration. But as they're talking... They're on the mountain and Elijah and Moses and Jesus are talking. And we read in verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now that verse might not seem like much if you read it in English. But in the Greek, the word departure there, the, the Greek for departure there, what English translators are translating this word to departure, the word is actually exodus. And that's a clue. The Bible writer wants you to see that here he is, Jesus, on the mountain of the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. The, the kingdom of God is being presented, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets. Here's Jesus, and they're speaking about the exodus of Jesus that he is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And I say that to say something I said a few weeks ago. You can't understand the ministry of Jesus. You really can't understand what words like salvation or this idea that we are the people of God without the book of Exodus. Without the narrative of the Old Testament, and particularly this book of Exodus. And so for the next 11 weeks, so that we can understand what a life in Christ is like, we're going to be studying this book of Exodus. Now, we're only going to be here for 11 weeks, so we're going to have to really move through the book. I do encourage you to get the little journal, as I already mentioned, and be reading along and be taking notes. And... And be asking questions. This is an amazing story that is so instructive to us as Christians. So instructive to us as followers of Christ. But today to set the story up, I want to look at kind of three big story ideas with you. The setting of the story. The hero. And we're going to look particularly at the hero of the passage we read today. And then the struggle. We begin to see the struggle or the conflict in the story. So let's look at the setting. Now this is very important. Exodus begins where Genesis ended. If you're not too familiar with Genesis, there's a moment in Genesis, it's kind of a key moment in the whole Bible. This is kind of one of the key moments in all of the understanding of God and his dealing with humanity. And he calls this man Abraham. And God says to Abraham many things, but one of the things that he says to them is, I'm going to make you great, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. You and your offspring will be my people, and your offspring, here's what he says, will be as numerous as the stars in the night sky, and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now the story, if you're familiar, kind of develops a little slowly. Abraham has one child of the promise, Isaac. Isaac has two Children, Jacob and Esau, the younger is the promised child. But Jacob then has 12 sons. And this people begins to grow. They're living in the land of Canaan, this land that God 
had promised them. And, and everything seems to be going according to plan, right? There's 12 sons. They're all having sons. They're all married. This, this group of people is getting larger and larger. But then a great tragedy strikes. It almost ends the whole thing. A, a great famine comes to the land of Canaan. And they all should have died. They all should have died. They all would have died. Except for the fact that God and his sovereign mercy had sent one of their sons ahead of them to Egypt. And it's a long story. And he didn't even know that he was being sent by God. And they didn't know that they were sending him to Egypt. But God was sending their young son, Joseph, to Egypt. And through a great series of events, Joseph became a prince of Egypt and ultimately, became, ultimately was used by God to save not only all of Egypt, but to save his own people. And so... These sons of Jacob, this family, this promised people of God moves to Egypt. There was about 70 of them in all. And the amazing thing in this unexpected way, even though you wouldn't think they were going to leave the promised land and go to Egypt, but it was actually in Egypt that this vision that God had given Abraham started to become true. And these 70 people that entered Egypt, by the time they left Egypt, we learn in Scripture there's about 2 million people. They had become as as numerous as the stars in the night sky. They had been fruitful. They had multiplied greatly. So the book of Exodus, we're, we're kind of going to look at chapter 1 and 2 today, even though we only read 2, but it was a long passage. But the book of Exodus kind of begins in prosperity. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. It says, the people of Israel were fruitful. They were living there in the land of Goshen, the land of Egypt, so they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But as God blessed the Hebrew people, this made the Egyptians incredibly nervous. They didn't remember Joseph, this Hebrew prince that had saved them from famine. And they saw that for some reason we've got all these Hebrew people living here and they're growing like crazy. What are we going to do? And so their answer was make them serve Egypt. Their answer was slavery. Their answer was oppression. Their answer was make them serve Egypt. And they, they did all these kind of national projects. They built the great cities of Egypt. The Egyptians enslaved these Hebrew people and, and made them build all these, if you will, monuments to the greatness of Egypt. Look at verse 12. It says, The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, this is important. I want you to get this. It's, it's hard to see in your English translation. And your English translator is just trying to make it more readable for you. So we're not upset with him. But if you, if you go back and look at this in the Hebrew, it actually just use, is using the same word over and over and over. And, and a more literal translation would be this. Egyptians made the people of Israel serve as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of service in the field. In their service, they ruthlessly made them serve as slaves. You get the message. The people of Israel are growing. The people of Israel are being blessed by God. Egypt is intimidated. And so what is their answer? Serve Egypt. Just serve Egypt. Just serve Egypt. Your, 
you're supposed to serve Egypt. What you're supposed to do is serve Egypt. And so we pick up the story today. Israel is in bondage. The Hebrew people are in deep bondage. And it's from this bondage, it's from this deep bondage, serve Egypt, serve Egypt, serve Egypt, that God begins to deliver them. And, and this sets the stage for the whole story. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss this, okay? There are many groups throughout the history of Christianity that this story, this story has been kind of the fundamental story to them. They, they really identify with this story. They really get this story. And that's, that's true of different groups of folks, groups of Christians all over the world. But one group that we see, where we see this in the West, this is certainly true of those who were enslaved in the first part of American history. It was an incredibly powerful story among that slave culture. In fact, if you've read uh, any of the old spiritual songs from the American South of the 18th and 19th centuries, they, they, they often mention Moses. <laughs> they often mention uh, this story, this story of the Exodus. There was this great identity with this idea of being freed from bondage. The civil rights movement, if you're familiar, Martin Luther King's final speech, I've been to the mountaintop, right? Have you heard that speech? That's what he's, he's saying there. He's identifying with Moses. For, for a lot of groups of people, including uh, people here in the West, people here in the United States, this has been a very, very, very powerful story that is, is deeply part of the personal narrative. Now, the one group <laughs> or one group that I think has missed this story in large part is people in the West of European descent because the mythology of that group wasn't about bondage and freedom. It was, a, it was about self-determination. It was about self-freedom or self-actualization. It was pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It was work hard and choose your own destiny. So if you're in that group, which many of us are, don't miss this. <laughs> don't miss the lesson of bondage here. D don't, don't, don't be so diffused by your own narrative of personal destiny that you miss this powerful bondage story that really grabs at all of us. Bob Dylan once said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And Dylan was right. Don't miss this. There's always a slave master. There's always a slave master. I don't care who you are. You may be a socialite. You may be an ambassador. You may be a heavyweight champion. There's always a slave master. There's always somebody saying, you serve this. You serve me. Without me, you're nothing. I'm the one that's made you. I'm the, I'm the one that's made you strong. I'm the one that gives you everything you need. It may be your work, right? A lot of people in a city like Atlanta, it's their work. And, the, and here's how you know it's a slave master. The, the, the work always wins. You always say yes to the work. You always say yes because you're, you're too afraid to say no. It may be a parent, right? A lot of people, there's an expectation that your parent gave you long ago, and that is always in the background. 
It's always driving you. It's always pushing you. You're always trying to prove that parent right or wrong. It may be some dream you have, right? If I do this, if I achieve this, all I have to do is achieve this and then I will be somebody. But I want you to hear this. There's always a slave master. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's the, that's the setting here. These people are in great bondage. They are in servitude. Now, here's the thing that people miss about Exodus. And this is so important. If you want to understand this book, don't miss this. People think, if you, if you said, what's the message of Exodus. What's Exodus about? And people will say, well, you know, it's about freedom, right? It, 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 what did Moses say to Pharaoh, right? If you say, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? People will say, well, I know what he said. He said, let my people go, right? Let my people go. You know, you remember the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. But actually, that's not what he said. That's not what he said. The, 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 the book of Exodus is not just about liberation, personal liberation. That's actually a, a Western Enlightenment message. <laughs> That's actually not what this book is about. Here's what Moses says, and he says this over and over throughout the book. He says, the Lord, yod heh vav the, the personal name of God, the God of the Hebrews, the, the true one God who's revealed himself, Yahweh, some people translate it, but we actually don't even know how it's said because the, the priests, the, the people serving in the temple would not even say this word aloud. It was so personal. It was so strong. The Lord, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, here's what Moses says, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me. Who's saying let my people go here? It's not Moses. He's just the messenger. He's saying, God, the Lord, he's saying, let my people go. These are my people. Let them go. They're serving you, Pharaoh. They're serving Egypt. They're building all these great cities. You let them go. But why? So they can serve me. <laughs> the book of Exodus is not just about liberation to personal autonomy. No, the, the book of Exodus is about going from having one slave master to having a better master. To having the true master. To having the master that actually we were designed to serve. We were, we were made to serve. We were made to worship. This is what people miss about the book. Have you ever read the book of Exodus? A lot of people have tried to read the book of Exodus. And you start off and it's kind of fun. And there's the plagues. And there's the whole crossing of the Red Sea. And that's interesting. And then there's the... You know, you may make it through the striking of the rock and then maybe you get to the Ten Commandments and you're like, okay, I know this. And then after that, it's all of this like weird instruction about how to build a tabernacle. And you kind of lose interest. But really all that part is half of the book. It's half of the book and people kind of lose interest in that. But that's the point. God has taken people who were subject to one slave master, his people, and he's called them out of that so they could serve and worship him. So there's all this instruction about how to rightly worship the Lord. The book of Exodus is about the people of God going from being servants of Pharaoh, servants of Egypt, to being servants of God. And that, I want you to hear this, that is actually the way of true liberation. People aren't just freed to be free. They're freed to go and worship God. 
Tim Keller once wrote, you're only free when God is your master. You're only free when God is your master. There is an enlightenment message that says, just be free to be free. But that actually will just lead you into bondage of something. It may be work, it may be your parent, it may be some dream, it may be some cultural identity. You're only free, you're only really free when God is your master. The old hymn writer George Matheson says, make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Make me a captive, and then I'll be free. Force me to render up my sword, and then a conqueror I shall be. I'll sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. Here's the setting. They're in bondage. And the whole story arc, I'm giving it away, is that God is going to set them free, but not to just be free, to go and worship him, to go and serve him. They're going to exchange a bad master for the true master, for a good master, the Lord. But the second thing we need to look at is the hero or the heroes of the story. Now, there's a lot of heroes, if you will, in the book of Exodus. I do want to look at the heroes of these first couple chapters. This is fascinating. Do you notice who the heroes are? Did you pick up on it? As Liz was reading, did you pick up on who, who the real heroes are of the story here? Let, let's go back to chapter 1 because, again, I want to cover chapter 1. It says in verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They feared the Lord. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So we see the first hero, these two midwives. They're named here, Shifra, Pua. And since they became... Legends, they feared God. They, they, they didn't listen to Pharaoh. They disobeyed Pharaoh's demands and feared the Lord so that these babies could live. But of course, Pharaoh, when he was duped by these midwives, he, he made a stronger decree. And he basically says, here's the decree he makes. He basically says, everybody in Egypt, if you see a Hebrew boy, throw him in the Nile. I mean, that's the decree. Every, everyone, Hebrew and Egyptian, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, pick them up and throw them in the river, drown them. Now this is, I mean, <laughs> let's not lose sight of the horror of this, of the deep pain that of course is caused to the whole land, particularly to the people of the Hebrews, or their children are just being thrown into the river. But in the midst of this, we meet another hero, Jochebed. Now this is the Levite's wife, this is the mother of Moses. We learn her name in chapter 6. Jochebed. It says that she saw Moses was a fine child. It's actually better probably rendered. She had desire for Moses. Of course. This is her son and she saw this something in this son. And she wanted this son to live. And so she does a very amazing thing. The, the command of Pharaoh was throw the baby in the Nile. And she sort of obeys that. She, she sort of throws the baby in the Nile, only amongst all this death and all this destruction, she makes for him a boat of salvation, if you will. She makes like a little ark 
for Moses. And we see a theme here. God saving his people through the water of death. She makes this little ark. She trusts God and she sends Moses in this little reed basket. And of course, then we meet the next hero in the story. The daughter of Pharaoh who sees the basket. Jochebed had no idea what was going to happen. But the daughter of Pharaoh sees the basket. She takes pity on the child. Amazingly, she takes the child in as her own, thwarting the command of her father, Pharaoh. Totally disobeying her father, she takes on this Hebrew child. And then, of course, we see the next hero, Moses' sister. We, most people believe this is Miriam, who's identified in chapter 15, who then is also a hero who courageously steps out and engages Pharaoh's daughter, something that a Hebrew slave would never have done. And she kind of works this deal where Moses' own mother gets to nurse the baby and gets paid to do it. And it's interesting, in all of these stories, the, the, these heroes are blessed. The midwives are blessed. They have families of their own, we read. Jochebed, the mother of Moses, she's blessed. She gets to keep her baby. The, the daughter of Pharaoh is blessed. She gets to ultimately have a child. Miriam is blessed. The, Pharaoh's daughter pays wages to the family just so that this baby can be nursed. But there's more heroes in the story. There's a few others. Later on, after Moses murders this Egyptian and is on the run, he's a fugitive, he's a sojourner, he has no home, he's totally lost in the land. And of course, we see the daughters of Ruel, these seven women that show up. Moses meets them at this well and they give him home. They give him a passage to home. They connect him with their father and he finds a place to settle, to live. They, in a sense, save his life. This is very interesting. There's three men in the story. Ruel, who seems to be a good man. Moses, who makes a mess of everything. And Pharaoh, who's evil, murdering all these people. And there's 12 women and in this story, it's the women. In this passage we just read, it's the women who are the heroes. It's the women who are acting courageously. It's the women who are bringing order. It's the women who are, if you will, saving the day. Now, why is this so interesting? In ancient literature, female characters were always depicted as the one who created chaos. In ancient literature, female characters were always the one who created that disrupted things. And it was the male character that restored order and that acted courageously. But here in this story, unlike most all ancient literature, we actually see the very opposite thing happening. <laughs> it's the men who are creating chaos, it's the men who are causing disruption, and it's the women who are bringing restoration. It's the, it's the women who are actually acting courageously and reordering the world. Now, what does this tell us? Well, two things. Number one, it tells us the story's true. I mean, there's no way you would have just come up with this story. It, this cuts against ancient mythology. This is not a myth of the day. But the second thing that it tells us, and I, I want you to hear this, it's very important for us to hear, is this is how the Lord works. The Lord often uses the person that you wouldn't expect, the person that you might miss in the story, to do this great thing. You know, Robert Alter is a great Hebrew scholar, he says that all of Hebrew literature is upending the macro culture of the day. It's the younger brother, not the older, who God receives his sacrifice, the story of Cain and Abel. It's the younger brother that the father blesses, Jacob and Esau. 
who's the child of the promise. It's the barren wife, Sarah, and then later, of course, Rachel, that actually has the favored son, the son of the promise. It's the women, not the men, who bring order and restore things. I think there's something for us to hear in this, this window into how God works. There are people who are serving the Lord very obviously. And many of those people that are serving the Lord obviously and have these big platforms and doing great things for the Lord are faithful and good and amazing. And the Lord is blessing them and they're being faithful to the Lord. But there are many more people. (laughs) When we are in glory someday, surrounding the throne of God, I think that the thing, the people that you might miss, that you (laughs) you might, who might not be being made that big of a deal of, are those important people now. And the people that everybody want to meet, the people that everybody want to get close to, the people that God will really be shining his glory on, that he'll really be rewarding that day, are the people that were faithful in the small things, the people that did things over and over that maybe nobody noticed or nobody recognized, faithful to the Lord, consistent to the Lord. And those are the people that the Lord, in his way, was really using to do great things. Things. There's a lot of people like that in this very church. There's so many people here that, that, that are blessing all of us through small, unseen acts of faithfulness to the Lord. And the Lord is pleased by that. And there is great reward in that. So we've looked at the setting of the story, the heroes of the story. Finally, I want to look at the struggle or the conflict in the story. Now, this story teaches us so much about how God works. In our teaching meeting this week, uh, Jennifer McCliss says, this story teaches teaches us a lot about God's process. And I thought that was a good word. God's way, God's process, so different than ours. My mind works incredibly linearly, right? Like this should happen, and this should happen, and this should happen. And then, of course, this should happen. And it's all obvious when I think about it. That's not how the Lord works. Here the people are in the land of Canaan. They're starting to multiply. And what does God do? He sends them to Egypt. But it's in Egypt that they're incubated, that they're blessed, that they grow to be this great nation. But of course, then it turns. The people are oppressed. And so God hears their cries and he sends them a deliverer. And here's the amazing thing. Hear this. God sends a deliverer. He's answering the people. But it takes 80 years the, the, the baby has to become an 80-year-old before this promise actually starts kind of kicking in. It's an amazing thing. It's so different than how I would draw this up. And then, of course, the baby's born, but there's this horrible edict that the baby has to die. But it actually is that edict that creates the sequence of events that gets Moses, the deliverer, to grow up in this privileged household where he would receive incredible education, where he would totally learn the way of Pharaoh, where he'd totally be prepared to be the kind of deliverer that could actually overcome the Egyptians and bring the people out. And somewhere along the way, Moses understands who he is. You know, Hebrews 11, it's a fascinating passage. I think it's on the screen. Look at this with me. It says, by faith, Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. 
for he was looking for the reward. Now there's a lot in that passage. We don't have time to break down. But the point I'm trying to make here is somewhere Moses realizes that he was of the people who were the Hebrews. He identifies with those who are being oppressed. He, he leaves the privilege of Pharaoh's household and identifies with his, his people. And he goes out and he kills this Egyptian. An amazing thing for him to do. Now, what was amazing about it is not that Moses, who was a prince in Egypt, went and killed someone. In fact, he would have seen a lot of Egyptian leaders just ruthlessly kill people. It was a very ruthless time. The amazing thing about this is that Moses killed the Egyptian, probably Egyptian officer, on account of the Hebrew slave. If he killed the Hebrew slave, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But because he killed the Egyptian officer on account of the Hebrew slave, then it became this capital offense. Now, what's amazing about this whole sequence of events, though, is that it's his own people. Moses here, he's leaving privilege. He's going to the oppressed. He's going to serve his people. He's trying to serve them. Maybe in this improper way, but he's trying to serve his people. He's trying to identify with them. And his own people reject him. Who made you prince over us? Who made you lord over us, Moses? Who do you think you are? What are you, what are you trying to do? He's trying to identify with his people, and yet his own people reject him. And, of course, he's wanted for dead. And he has to flee. He goes to this backwards place, the Midian, where he leaves everything he's ever known. He leaves all the privileges he's ever had. He leaves all of his family, all of his friends. He almost dies. And yet... It's in that place, again, that the Lord is working. He's there for 40 years, by the way. But in that 40 years, the Lord teaches him humility. The Lord brings him low. The Lord teaches him wisdom. He ultimately had an encounter with God that would totally change his life. Don't you see? In all of this, this process that we would never draw up, God was readying a deliverer for his people. Now, it's easy for me to talk about this, all right? It's easy for me with the distance of time and space and history to just say, don't you see what the Lord was doing? But in real time, this was 80 years. He was in the household of Egypt for 40 years. He was out in Midian for 40 years. I mean, what kind of deliverer is this? Is the Lord really actually doing anything at all for 80 years? Is God actually listening to the cries of his people? And of course... He was. Something I want you to hear today, and I want you to take this home, is that the Lord is always at work. In, in His ways, in His timeline, even though we don't understand it, the Lord is always at work. Now, many of the things in my life that have happened have happened through the events that I could have never explained to you. Most of the time in my life where I say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, it doesn't work that way, this way. And those things don't add up to anything. And when I just do something that I have no idea what I'm doing, that's the very thing that the Lord uses to do something. You know, you know why Christ's covenant exists? Like why we're here, why we're all here today? You know, it was just a few chance meetings several years ago, 10 years ago now. I randomly met David Dieter, I randomly met Jason Byers, the conversation started but then that just kind of sat still for four years. Nothing really happened. And then one day there was time to plant this church. And I didn't want to go. I was happy in Birmingham. And Paige, it was really Paige that says, I think you're supposed to do this. I think the Lord wants us to do this. Without Paige, I, wouldn't, I would never have responded to this. I wouldn't be here. 
How did I meet Paige? Well, I moved to Covington, Georgia. I met this guy. I saw a picture of his daughter. And I realized that that girl I had met two years before at a Christmas party. And I was so taken by her at that Christmas party. Well, why was I at the Christmas party? Well, a year before, a year and a half before the Christmas party, I had been in a wedding. And I was late to the rehearsal. And I was late to the rehearsal. I showed up late in just a t-shirt and, and shorts. And the bridesmaid that I was paired up with, she and I had a good laugh. We kind of hit it off. And she's the one that threw the Christmas party. We became friends. Why was I late to the rehearsal? Well, I was late to the rehearsal because it was a Friday afternoon and I had a Greek class. I was in seminary and Greek's hard. And I thought about skipping. I thought, well, I'm gonna skip Greek today because I wanna make it in time for the rehearsal. But then I thought, no, this Greek class is really hard. I'm gonna stick it out. I'm gonna go to class and then I'll leave right after. And because I left right after I was late to the wedding, and because I was late to the wedding, I had a good laugh connected with this bridesmaid. Because we had a good laugh and connected, I went to her Christmas party two years later. And because I went to the Christmas party two years later, I meet Paige. And because I met Paige two years after that, when I met Paige's dad, I recognized her and was kind of drawn to her. We fell in love. And really through her, I met, had these random meetings with David Dieter and Jason Byers. And now we're all here. I mean, here's the deal. If I wouldn't have gone to Greek that day, <laughs> would any of this have happened? Would we all be here today or would, would, would there be a totally different thing? And here's the thing. When I went to Greek class that day, I didn't have any of this in mind. I wasn't going to Greek class saying, hey, you know, one day, August 14th, 2022, I'm going to be preaching to all these folks. I didn't have any of that in mind. I just went to Greek. I just went to the class because that was what I was supposed to do. I was just trying to be a good student. Don't you see how the Lord works? I could never have drawn this up. I, I didn't have any of this in mind. But in all of that, the Lord is working. The Lord is always working. You know, my dad always used to say, Jason, just do the next right thing. All you need to do is just do the next thing that you're supposed to do. Just do the next right thing that you're supposed to do and then just trust the Lord to take care of the rest. And I want to say that to you today. You know, I know you may have a desire, a big thing in your heart. You want to be used by the Lord. You want to get married. You want to start this. You want to do that. You want to see God bless your life. Look, all I can say to you is just do the next thing that you're supposed to do. Be faithful in that and the Lord We'll take care of the rest. He is always working. And, and his path may be totally different than you would ever imagine. That's how the Lord works. This story, a baby's born. And all these things had to happen over the course of 80 years for this Moses to be ready, to be called out by God to deliver his people. But the Lord is always at work. And he's at work here now. You know, this story... This story today, August 14, 2022, it's related to another baby being born. Except he was born 2,000 years ago. And when he was born, when this baby was born, just like Moses, the king wanted him dead. The king wanted to kill him. And he actually, in order to be saved from the king that wanted to kill him, went toward the Nile River. He went to Egypt. And then he came out of Egypt. And when he came out of Egypt, his own people, just like Moses, 
even though he had identified with them, even though he totally humbled himself to identify with his people who were oppressed, even though he identified with his people in this most personal way, he was rejected by them. And he, like Moses, went out into the wilderness. But this baby actually went to the, the wilderness of wildernesses, the wilderness of total separation, the wilderness of total forsakenness. Jesus was away from, he was betrayed and forsaken by everyone, even God himself. He was totally alone, totally abandoned, totally rejected, and he went to this wilderness to take on the hardest things, sin, death. But in that, in the story of this baby 2,000 years ago that went to the wilderness for us, right now, today, in this very moment, God is calling some of you. God is calling some of you to himself to be his people, to be his covenant people through whom which he will show his glory to the whole world. Don't you understand the process of God? Now you're a part of the story of God. And I would just say this to you. There's, there's, way, there's, there's only, only one major way that Christians respond when God begins to call you. And it's this, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Right now, as the Lord's calling you, maybe calling some of you right now by the power of his spirit. There's only one way to respond, repentance. To turn away from that slave master, whatever it is that you're serving, whatever it is in your life that's saying you need me to be important. Turn away from that. And trust Jesus. And trust God. Trust God that in his time and in his way, even though we could never understand it, he is bringing about his glory. He is working for your good. He is creating for himself a worshiping people of God. He's calling you to worship. Won't you trust him? The Lord is calling you. There's only one response, repentance, to turn away from that other slave master in your life and to submit yourself to the master that you were intended for, the Lord. To submit yourself to the Lord. That's where real freedom and life is found. The book of Exodus. It's about God calling people out of bondage into another kind of bondage. The true bondage. Service of God. Worship of God. And here's the deal. The story of Jesus is the exact same. He's calling people out of bondage to all sorts of things. To pride. To... Greed, to lust. He's calling you out of bondage to all those things that will only kill you. To the bondage that will actually give you life. To following him, to being his servant, to being his child. Let's pray. Father, I pray in this moment that you would lead your church toward repentance and toward faith. Break our hearts, Lord, and give us faith. And so I just want to lead you, church family, at this time, with your heads bowed. What is it that you need to turn from, that you need to repent of? What is it that is the master of your life that has claimed ultimate attention? It may be something sinful. It may be something good that's just claimed the top spot, and it's not the Lord. You will serve somebody. And there's only one who's worthy of your service. There's only one who's worthy of your life. So repent of those things. And in this moment, they're in the quiet of your heart. Trust in the Lord. Trust that he loves you.
Trust that his plans are good for you. Trust that he's proven his love for you in the cross of Jesus, that Jesus himself came to die for us. Trust in Jesus that his plans for you are right and good, that, that he notices you. That even in the little things, you're, you're being noticed. He loves faithfulness in the small things. One day when you're with him, all that will be known. Once you trust him, once you believe in his plans, once you believe that even in the things that you could literally make no sense out of, he is working. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and be his people. And so Lord, I pray that this would be true of us. And I pray it in Jesus' name before I say.